Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 116, Psalm 116. For the past several weeks and continuing into the next several months, I am looking at a concept out of the book of Psalms that simply I have entitled Building a Spiritual Legacy. Now what I mean by that is I want my children to do it better than I have done it. I want my children to have greater faith, a greater kingdom-building energy, a greater testimony, a greater love for God than I do. And I want my grandchildren to do it better than their parents do it and have a greater kingdom influence and a greater testimony and on and on and on. That's what I mean when I talk about building a spiritual legacy. Now, certainly, this series is not going to exhaust all of the principles that we can and should be teaching our young people and learning from firsthand experience, but it will serve, I believe, to give us a sort of frame of reference that will help us to begin the process of building that spiritual legacy. And I want to use the Psalms to accomplish that. I hope that by looking at very specific psalms, we will be able to gain very specific knowledge of how to build that kind of a spiritual legacy. I believe Psalm 116 was written by Hezekiah, the king of Israel. There are some scholars who believe that David is the author of Psalm 116, and that may very well be true, but I don't think so. I think Hezekiah wrote it, but it doesn't really matter whether it was David or Hezekiah because both of these men faced death. In Hezekiah's case, he was literally dying on his deathbed. The prophet came to him, pointed his finger at him and said, make sure your business affairs are in order because you're going to die. This is what the Lord says, the prophet told him. Hezekiah, rather than protesting and whining and crying, turned his face to the wall and began to praise and thank God for who God was in his life and to cry out for God's mercy on him in the context of the imminent judgment that was to come, that he knew he was going to face God at any moment. In response to that, it seems, God granted to Hezekiah 15 more years of life. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion about God's sovereignty and whether or not he changed his mind. I'll do that in another message. Suffice it to say, he did not change his mind. Our prayers cannot dictate the mind, will, and purpose of God. We simply pray in order to know what God's mind, will, and purpose is. But the scriptures tell us that God extended his life for 15 more years. And in the face of this death experience, in other words, coming right up to death's door, we watch as this psalm unfolds and the man makes a journey from death's door to rest, to joy, to peace. Now, let me give you the legacy principle and then let me flesh it out a little bit more than I did last time we were together. The legacy principle is simple. I want my grandchildren to learn to have content and grateful spirits rooted in their salvation that never presumes upon the grace of God. I want my grandchildren to be content to see the mercy of God, to see what God has done for them, and not to presume that God's grace is always going to vindicate them from known and unconfessed sin. Romans 6 tells us, what shall we say then? 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? This antinomianism, technical word for presuming upon the grace of God, is something that we need to be very careful we do not have and something that will very carefully be extracted from our children and our grandchildren if they possess this kind of presumptive spirit. Now, there are things that will drive a presumptive spirit away and breed, if you will, a spirit of contentedness. One is a thankful heart. This is a thanksgiving psalm. It is a psalm designed to show that God has been favorable, that God did a marvelous thing in freeing Hezekiah from death's door. And Hezekiah then pledges or promises to publicly fulfill his vow in such a way that he will reflect the glory of God in his life. You see, a thankful spirit, a thankful heart, hinders a presumptuous spirit. A thankful heart finds its motivation in the fact that we have been delivered from death and we have been delivered from sin by the blood of Christ. A thankful heart is never presumptuous upon past blessings and grace. Well, God, you did this for me in the past, therefore I expect you to do this in the future. God reserves the right to change the course of your life. A thankful heart submits to that. A thankful heart walks in continuous prayer. We pray without ceasing, not necessarily with words, but an attitude, a mindset that appeals to the fact that Christ is walking alongside of us, that we are being firmly held in the grip of his grace, day in and day out, whether we feel it or not, Christ is holding our hand. Christ is strengthening his grip as it gets tougher and tougher to live out our lives in holy and honorable ways. But a thankful heart never is content to stay there. There's a different kind of contentedness or lack of contentedness, a disease, if you will, that we need to have. What I mean by that is if we understand grace, we are then going to be motivated by that grace to action. Grace is never content just absorbing grace. Grace is always the trigger that moves us to action, to respond, if you will, to God's grace, to become productive in our faith, the therefores of the Bible. In light of this, therefore, this is how I want you to live out your life. A thankful heart finds its peace in the fact that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. You see, a thankful heart extracts a discontented spirit and a presumptuous spirit. When we're thankful, when we have that gratitude to God for the grace he has extended to us, when we understand that grace in meaningful and positive ways, we will not be presumptuous upon his grace. It is also a restful heart that hinders a presumptuous spirit. When the psalmist talks about finding his rest in the Lord, he means a variety of rest, rest in different kinds of circumstances and situations. That's why the word rest there is in the plural. It speaks of the many kinds of trials we face, especially that one we will all face when we are at death's door. You know, we are in great need, and we need great rest when there are terrors of the heart. I don't know about you, but I have many terrors of the heart, especially when I see the pain and the heartache in others. There's always this mindset that, that says, if this can happen to them, then it can also happen to me. We see so much heartache, so much pain around us. Inevitably, our spirit will begin to contend and say, that could happen to me, and it could cause great fear. But rest, a restful heart, will extract the terrors of heart. There are the alarms and the pangs of conscience, a conscience we ignore, and the price tag that inevitably follows when we ignore our conscience. Now, let me make a differentiation here. 
You ever heard the expression, I'm sure you have, let your conscience be your guide. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Do not trust your conscience unless, unless your heart has been regenerated. Because the difference now is your conscience before Christ is rooted in the natural man. And the natural man is bent to evil. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he pours out his Holy Spirit into your heart. And that Holy Spirit becomes your conscience. That is when your conscience can be your guide. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, he places that Holy Spirit there to deal with the sin in your life. But there are times when we ignore it. There are times when the pangs of conscience are ignored and the inevitable pain and suffering that follows will bring us great disaster. But you see, a restful heart can also overcome the pangs of conscience. What about self-doubt? What about the bodily pains and uncertainties that we face? The older we get, more wise people, the older we get, we understand that our lives are fragile. Our bodies are fragile. The heartaches and the pains of life itself take its toll on the body itself. And we begin to wonder about who we are. We even begin to doubt things about ourselves because the pain becomes the megaphone. The pain becomes the, the difficulty that we can't seem to overcome. Let me tell you something about self-doubt. Our identity is in Christ. He never doubts. When we understand who we are as princes and princesses, children of the living God, all self-doubt is removed, and that is where we will find peace. What about broken trust? What about the broken trust of a marriage? The heartache that comes from knowing that your spouse has been unfaithful. What about the broken trust of children who no longer walk after God? What about the broken trust of friendships? People you thought you can trust that stab you in the back. What about broken trust? You see, rest and a thankful spirit can overcome broken trust. There is a confusion of ignorance and the frustration of being wrong. I can't tell you how many times I said to myself, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why did you go there? Why did you look at that? Why did you listen to that? Why did you say that about the scriptures? Why did you teach that? I can go on and on and on because, you know, there is a sense in which as human beings, we are ignorant and that ignorance causes confusion and frustration. And that's why it's so hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But rest in Christ can overcome confusion and ignorance. What about rest from the vanity of self-righteousness that leads to a legalistic and a proud heart? You know what I mean by that? Why can't everybody be like I am? Why can't everybody act the way I do? We have certain things and certain borders by which we define what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. Christians talk a certain way. Christians look a certain way. And we fail to understand the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit's thumbprint on every individual. It's never the same. There are no two Christians alike. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, in his creative genius, has fashioned us in his image and likeness in ways that are as, as numerable as the stars in the heaven. You and I are different in that regard. So why do I have the right at this point to say to you that you are going to be judged by the way in which I view you through my grid? But we can have rest, even from prejudiced hearts, even from legalistic and bigoted hearts. We can have rest from the struggles against the fallen man. And they are many. Struggles that we never seem to win. We just keep going on 
and on and on, falling into the same fleshly traps that we renounced when we came to faith in Christ. We keep on living the way we want to live in spite of the fact that God has placed us in his image and likeness as moral beings. That you and I are relational beings and rational beings and immortal beings. You and I created in the image and likeness of God as Christians are designed to make moral choices every single day of our lives. But what do we do? We fall in love with what we once were. We fall in love with what the past is. We look back and we say, that tasted good. Just like Israel in the wilderness looked back and said, Egypt looks good. Egypt is tasteful. I used to eat melons in Egypt. I'm eating manna here in the wilderness. And our hearts become discontent. And what do we do? We look back and we see Egypt. And somehow or another, we forget the slavery and the pain and the heartache that Egypt brought us. And we want that life again. Yet rest in the Lord can deliver us even from that fallenness and that fallen nature. Rest can come from the fear that we have, that many have, that we're going to have to suffer and drink of the cup of sorrow. We see so much pain around us with media the way it is now. We're able to view people's pain from countries away. And we see the incredible sorrow that's in this world. And we reason to ourselves, that could happen to me. What if God asks me to drink that cup of sorrow? What if that happens to me? Yet there is rest in Christ, even from the fear of the cup of sorrow. Rest from the indecision and uncertainty that we face every day can be ours when we're indecisive about the moral choices we have to make. Which way do I go? What do I do when I'm faced with this? Where do I go? Do I turn right? Do I turn left? Do I stand pat? What do I do? Every day, there's indecision. And yet in Christ, there is rest. Why should we be at rest? If you'll look at Psalm 116, and you'll look with me at verse 7b, we'll start there. Why should I be at rest? Why should I have a thankful heart? Why should I not have a presumptuous spirit? Why? For the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Listen to me. God has purposed your rest, and God has purchased the rest that he purposed. Why? Because God promised you this rest. Therefore, each day of my life, I must choose that rest. God purposed it. God promised it. Christ purchased it. I must choose it. Every day of my life as a Christian, I can choose to be presumptuous or I can choose to be thankful and to be at rest. Now let's look at the therefore. If all of this is true, since all of this is true, therefore, that's what he begins verse 9 with, that, all of this is true, that. You see what he's going to say the rest of this, in the rest of this passage is if God's grace is the stimulant that brings you the rest and the thankful heart that does not presume upon the grace of God, then that grace must move to action. That grace must become active. Otherwise, it's presumptuous. It's presumptuous living. Grace must always be motivated to action. He says, all of this is true. I have that rest. I have that thankful heart. God has delivered me from death's door itself. I have the peace and the joy of knowing my God in this kind of intimate way so that, verse 9, I may walk before the Lord 
in the land of the living. Some translators say that that word may is will. Uh, I don't think it really matters. That the land of the living is the sons of men. That the land of the living is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think it really matters because as far as God is concerned, the kingdom of heaven that he has in glory has already begun here among the sons of men. So he's telling us, I must now live out this forgotten principle. Let me ask you a question. Are you an Orpa or a Ruth? You know that wonderful story of the book of Ruth? Are you an Orpa or a Ruth? Let me see if I can explain that to you. There's a forgotten principle. We are spectacles before the angels. And if we are spectacles before created angels, how much more are we spectacles before the God who fashioned us and has been so good to us? We are spectacles before God. Our thoughts, our speech, our actions go unhidden from him living in the context of gratitude before a God who has been so good to us. You know, the layman at the gate in the book of Acts, right after Pentecost, Peter and John walk up to him. They see him sitting there. Everybody else, all the religious people for years just walked by this guy, threw in their coins, threw in their little change and uh, they, by the way, they would do so with ostentatious spirits as well. They would actually stop at the guy that's sitting there, at the lame, uh, the lame guy sitting at the gate. They would stop and they would hold up their money. Everybody else would stop and watch. Watch what I'm doing. Cling. And they'd walk right by him. So when the man asked him for silver or gold, when he asked him for money, what did Peter and John say? They stopped too. Everybody else stopped to look to see what Peter and John were going to do for this lame man. He said, I don't have any silver or gold. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And you know what he did? He got up and he walked, but he did more. The Bible tells us he began to leap and jump and Praise God. He gave glory to God. You see what I'm talking about here? To walk before the Lord means that we walk as children in the context of a heavenly father. To be seen by a holy God who knows even from birth, even before birth, our name, the hairs on our head, the cups of sorrow we will have to drink, the pain our body will bear, the self-doubt, the confusion. And the promise here is, so that I will walk before the Lord, giving glory to God. Continuous verb, by the way, which means it's not something you do just one time. You don't just walk before the Lord one time. You walk before the Lord every day, Every second, again and again and again. It's a continuous loop. It never ends. That verb means every second of my life. That's why the hymn writer says, I need thee every hour. Another hymn writer says, it's not every hour, it's moment by moment. That's what it means to walk before God. Continuous verb. But now I asked you, are you an Orpah or are you a Ruth? Naomi lost her husband. She was now a widow. She had two sons who married Moabite women. And the two sons died. Now she's not only had the drink of the cup of sorrow once, but three times. Here is a woman with two other women, two daughters-in-law. Can you imagine the terror? No, you can't, because in that world, 
women living by themselves with no one else to care for them, no male heir, those women were in terrible, terrible danger. And so they heard in the midst of the famine they were experiencing that there was food to be found. But they had to pack their bags and leave home. So the stage is set to answer the question, are you an Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, or are you a Ruth, the other daughter-in-law? If you want to turn to it, you can. If not, just listen to me. In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we read this beginning with verse 10. We will go back with you to your people. That's what the daughters-in-law said to Naomi. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Are you an Orpah? Or are you a Ruth? Parenthetically, the book of Ruth is in the Bible to show us the lineage of King David. The whole purpose of the book of Ruth is to point us back to the grandparents that came as the result of the union between Ruth and Boaz because Ruth clung tenaciously to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God. Will you be an Orpah and turn back or will you be a Ruth and cling to your God? So I ask a question. What is your selling price? What is your selling price? So typical of kids, teenagers, by the way, who take a step or two with Jesus. Maybe they go on a retreat or are moved by a certain moment. Emotionally, they're charged and now they're walking with Jesus. They take a step or two forward but when the heat gets turned up, as it was with these two women with nothing to live for but an unsafe place and possible starvation, they quickly cave, just like their parents who quickly cave. You see, faith without works is dead. Verse 10 says, I believed Therefore, I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. Notice what the psalmist says. I believed. Then I said. Say, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. If my heart has never been changed by the blood of Christ, 
and my heart remains the same in its fallen nature, condemned by a holy God who hates sin, if I have never ever trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord, I'm the same man today that I was when I was born. Nothing's changed, nothing's different. But if I truly have come to experience his love and his forgiveness by his grace, not by what I've done, but by his grace, if my heart truly has been the recipient of, the, of that kind of divine favor, then and only then do I have the right to speak. That's what the psalmist said, I believe, therefore I said. But now we raise this question. If you have no faith, do you really have anything to share? Oh, you may have a few words of wisdom about life in this world. You may have a good business plan. You may have some wisdom as far as your job's concerned. But as far as affecting people's lives and as far as affecting your own life, if you have no faith in Christ, you have nothing to share. There is absolutely nothing to share. You have no reason to open your mouth. Not to your kids, not to your church, not to your community. Oh, you can give them some kind of moral guidance and what have you. You can be a father, you can be a mother, you can do all those things, but you will never ever build the kingdom of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. I believed, therefore I speak. Now, if your life is inconsistent, your words are meaningless. Your kids, your kids are surrounding themselves with anonymity. Here's what I mean. As long as we are in social relationships, as long as I am face to face with somebody, I have certain moral inhibitions and moral choices and moral restrictions because I'm face to face with that person. You set me around 10 or 15 people, I'm going to make certain moral choices as the result of being around 15 or 20 people. But if I can move into anonymity, if I can move into a secret life, then I can be whatever I feel like being and nobody will know the difference. And the more we become a culture of anonymity, the easier it's going to be for me to lower those moral inhibitions and to become something that I'm not or something that I wish I could be. Now, you men, listen to me. You can have an affair and your wife will never know it. You can have an affair with a faceless woman and your wife will never know it. You can have an affair every day of your life. Now listen to me, 90% of you or more are struggling with this and you know it. You can turn next door to your wife and say, no, I'm not struggling with that, but you're lying. You are struggling with that. And by the way, it's not just men. It's women. And all of that anonymity, all of that moral inhibition that is being dismantled, all of that moral integrity that dissolves in our anonymity is being passed on to our children. Your children, your children have created homepages for themselves. Many of them are innocuous. In fact, most of them are innocuous. There are a few of them that, frankly, are very disappointing to me to see. And if you click on their webpage, their homepage, on these places that have been created just for this reason, by the way, 50, 60, 40, 50, 60-year-old men are posturing themselves as 14 and 15-year-old teenagers, and your kids are subjecting themselves to that. It's been all over the news. It's not just the church now. It's all over the news. Secular media is picking up on the dangers your kids are experiencing. Well, I went to visit some of these websites. 
your kids' websites. I went to your kids' websites. Some of them, frankly, were disgusting. Most of them were not. But when you click on their webpage, their homepage, on the right-hand side of the page is a list of all the friends that they have communicated with, people they have had an exchange with. Within three clicks, click, homepage, click, friend, click, pictures. Within three clicks, I'm looking at your kids' friends who are, for all intents and purposes, naked. They're your friends. They're your kids' friends. And if you click a little further, the further you click, the more elaborate the immorality becomes. Eventually, if you stay on the website long enough, you'll get a pop-up. When you click that, you're on a porn site. And when we started contacting the parents about the dangers of this, personally on the telephone, the word I got back, now that may have changed since since a couple days ago, but the word I got back was this. Not one single parent we talked to knew their kids had done this. Not one. And even with some, there has been, now you may get mad at me, And you may want to shoot the messenger. That's all right. Not one parent knew their children were doing this. And even in some cases, even after we pointed out, click, 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 what's going to happen, the parents said, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with it. And the kids are developing more of an anonymity. You see, I can go on there. I'm 57 years old. I can go on there and act like I'm 14. You won't know the difference. I set up my homepage. I'm 14 years old. I set up my homepage and talk to you like I'm 14 years old. And I'm a pervert talking to your child. And you don't care. Why should you? Because some of you men have the same problem. How can you condemn your children when you've got the same problem? How can you say no to them when you're struggling with the same moral anonymity that they are? On the hopeful side, I just heard about some web software that men can buy. Like if I'm struggling with that issue, hook up my software with another brother to whom I'm accountable, he will know from his computer And I will know from my computer every website that he visits. And he will know every website I visit. So in essence, you have to have a buddy approve where you're going. Now, if you're sitting there, men, and you're saying, I will never, ever do that, you're already addicted. You're already addicted. You don't want any moral accountability, so how can you expect any moral accountability out of your children? I got to tell you, it's getting tougher. You know, when I was a kid, the big deal was to see if one of us could go into the drugstore and get a hold of a dirty magazine. And it was the big deal that we would boast to our friends that we did that. Disney World compared to what your kids are clicking on. Disney World. I don't know how your kids are going to make it apart from the grace of God. I don't know how they're going to be able to face this. It's an incredible world of horrible evil. And we don't know it. We can't see it. And then when we do, we excuse it. I want to tell you something, men. Don't any of you ever sit there and tell me, don't ever sit there and tell me that that stuff doesn't affect you. Don't ever tell me that it doesn't affect your wife and your relationship to her. Don't ever tell me that it doesn't affect how you look look at and view women. Don't tell me. Because you know that's not true. 
And listen to me, wives. You can't compete with those women. You can't compete. It's impossible. So don't lower yourself and try. You and your husband need to have a heart-to-heart talk. I would suggest when you go home, you take your husband by the cheeks, make him look at you in the eyes. Are you struggling with this? And watch him lie through his teeth. One of the reasons he's going to lie through his teeth is because he's afraid of your reaction. But the honesty and the loyalty of a man and his wife, of a woman and her husband, the loyalty to build each other up in the struggle, long-term will bring great blessing to your marriage. Short-term, it might be hard. But we live kind of alone, don't we? You realize how, when this message is played in the secular world, which it will be, when this goes out over the air on TV and radio, you know how many people are going to sit there and laugh at me? They're going to sit there and say, get a life. What's wrong with you, Puritan? What's wrong with you? Those images never go away. They're permanently burned in your mind. And every time you look at your wife, that's what you're going to see. Unless God's eraser takes them out. Like Elijah sitting in the cave. After he had called fire down from Mount Carmel. We sit there and we say, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who loves you and trusts you. God says, okay, Elijah, I want you to lift your head up, look out the cave window, because there are thousands of others just like you who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You see, those are your kids' heroes, but your kids haven't found them yet. They are the ones that should be your kids' heroes. The evil is incredible. There is a real sense in which we do not understand how evil this world is. You've heard me say before, we personally do not understand what evil we are capable of. None of us sitting here is incapable of doing the very things now that I've been talking about. I saw something the other day on TV even today, I still haven't gotten over it. I, I, I can't believe. I, I saw a special on the sex slave trade in the Caribbean. How little girls and young women, especially blonde hair and blue-eyed women, are being kidnapped and taken all over the various Caribbean countries and South American countries and sold into incredible Sex slavery. I need to be careful because there are children here. But one of the detectives who goes and rescues these children, one who spends his life, he, he sat there and he cried, a big burly guy that could bend any of us in two. He sat there with tears streaming down his face because of what he saw. He explained in one situation, women being impaled and pictures being taken, and you can imagine, through the head. I can't imagine being a parent of a girl who's been taken. I can't imagine, I've lost a child, we've lost a child, beyond any shadow of a doubt, choosing death or that, I would choose death. I would rather my child be dead than to have to go through that. I can't imagine what these parents are thinking when they go to bed at night. What's happening to my daughter? What's happening to my son? This world is dark. This, this underworld, this anonymous underworld that you click into 
is evil. It's evil. And we sit there and we say, for my kid, it's cute. Are you kidding me? Somebody came into your house and physically attacked your child. You'd stand back and say, that's all right, that's pretty cute. Something worse is going on in your child's anonymous world. In your child's anonymous world, something much more intense is going on, and some do not even care. One of the website's homepages that I read, and I, I have to finish here, one of the homepages that I read, the girl said on her profile, her favorite book is the Bible. Her favorite person is Jesus. And the thing she enjoys doing more than anything else is going to church and sitting under the preaching of the word. Sounds good. I said, okay, let me visit this girl, see what else she says. Click. The next page is a picture of a headshot. And she's smiling very, very nicely. The caption says, and I got to be careful. The caption says something to the effect of what she is not wearing underneath that headshot. And how cute it was. Is she confused? Probably. How could Jesus be your favorite person? How could the Bible be your favorite book? How could you sit under the preaching and teaching of the word and play a little porn star on your website? How could you do that? How could you sell out like Orpa that quickly? What's your price tag? A little fame? Others to think it's cute? Click on a little further and see what their boyfriends are saying. Look at the profanity that's coming out of their mouths. Look at what they're boasting about. And all around, these kids are your kids' friends. Even, by the way, not just, you're not just going to hear this in church. Last week, it's interesting, last week, on just about every major news station that I looked at, they all were bringing up the danger of this very, of this very practice. What saddens me, what saddens me, A, that your, our kids would do that. But B, you would think it's cute. There's a fire in the building. Somebody needs to yell, fire. I am now yelling, fire. Get out of the building. I'm afraid my child will be alienated from me and he'll go into more secretness and all blah, 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 blah. Grow up. It doesn't work that way. Your children do not want a father who's his buddy. He doesn't want a mother who's his buddy. He wants a mother and a father who is a mother and a father. Why are you trying to be just like your children? Your children need to become just like you, or do they? Or do they? I believed, therefore I said. Belief and saying need to be consistent. Let me close with this. In verse 15, out of the blue, he seems to make this statement. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Just after he said, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What vows have you made? When you married your wife and your husband, you made vows. God will require them of you. When you brought your children up here and they were baptized, you took vows and God will require them of you. When you stood and joined the church and, and took vows, God will require them of you. 
when you stand, God says, you know what? It's better for you not to vow a vow than to vow a vow and break it. God would rather you not vow it. But then he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You know what this is all about? It's all about the glory of God. It's not about you. From God's perspective, it's all about bringing you honorably home. That's what the word precious means, by the way, honorable. Honorable in the sight of God is when he brings his children home and they can look back and say, Lord, I never sold out. I never was faithless. I was a Ruth, not an Orpah. And we say this in our catechism, don't we? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Is God being glorified in your home? Or have you allowed the enemy in? Has the darkness settled into your home? Anonymity. Moral inhibition's gone. How indeed can God bring you home and call it honorable? Unless you repent. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Lord, make us anxious, not for what time it is. Make us anxious for what the temperature of our homes are. Lord, where there is repentance that needs to happen, I can only preach. You have to change the heart. I know right now, Lord, some kids are running for cover. And they're looking for ways to hide the guilt and the shame. And their parents perhaps are doing likewise. This is not about websites, Lord. It's not about the internet. It's about a heart that's right with you or not right with you. A heart that seeks to glorify you or one that seeks to hide in the context of sin and darkness, when in this very psalm you said that we are in your sight. So I pray for each home represented here. I pray that your spirit would speak in a way I cannot. I've done my very best. And Lord, I know that's not enough. Your spirit has to speak in a way I cannot. So bring holiness and purity to our marriages, to our families, to our businesses, and especially to our children. Now may the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.